The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we consider today a book that, quote, addresses a problem of deep and abiding concern to humanists, social scientists, legislators, and citizens. Cooperation is a choice, not a given. It is a choice that must be made time and again if people are to live well together, end quote. How do we foster this? How do we promote it beyond just calls for peace and harmony and determinations to remind folks of principles they should remember from kindergarten, like sharing is good, and you don't always get your way, and you feel better when you're nice to other people. That works for children, and no doubt it would help adults to keep in mind too. But it's not practical in a world where cooperation might be one-sided, and where we also depend on enlightened self-interest to keep people making good, rational choices for themselves and their families. What's good for some might be detrimental to others. We need a system that will harness the power of individualism, account for their selfishness, and prevent the whole thing from blowing apart. And to come up with the system, we need a mechanism to understand and analyze the way the different needs and wants of individuals and groups are balanced against the needs and wants of others. Today, we might start with what we call game theory and leave it at that. But today's guest says there's another rich tradition we can look to. Some practitioners of game theory before there was a developed mathematical discipline bearing that name. We can turn to the Greeks. Professor Josiah Ober helps us do that today on the History of Literature. Jack Wilson, welcome to the podcast. We have a great show today. This is a wonderful guest and a timely and important topic. We are lucky to have him here today. How do we all get along? How do we figure out how society can hold together, even when you have groups all competing for their own best interests, which might conflict with one another? Individuals make decisions Groups grab what they can. How do you do all that without chaos and anarchy and rebellion and factions and civil war? So let's give a game theory example so we know what we're talking about here. I suppose the prisoner's dilemma is the most famous example. You're probably familiar with this, but let's repeat it just in case. So we have two people who are arrested for robbing a bank. The police believe they have nailed their suspects, but they're not sure they have enough evidence for a conviction on armed robbery, which carries a 20-year prison sentence. Clever prosecutor places them in separate cells and goes to each of them, offering to cut a deal. He says, here's the deal I'm offering. I know you two care more about yourselves than one another. Here's your chance to save your own skin. If you confess and your partner doesn't, I'll let you go free and convict the other guy for armed robbery. 20 years he'll get. If you stay silent, don't cooperate with me, and he confesses, then you'll go to jail for 20 years, and he will walk. I'm assuming 
you will confess because you know it's better for you. But if you both end up confessing, I'll convict you both. But I'll be generous and make sure you're eligible for parole after five years. However, if neither of you confesses and you both stay silent, neither of you takes this deal, well, I'll convict you on possession of firearms, which admittedly is only a one-year sentence. Let me know tomorrow morning what you choose. So, do you see what's happening here? The best outcome for the group of prisoners is for both prisoners to remain silent. They will each get a year in prison, a relatively light term. But prisoner A doesn't want to remain silent because if he does that and prisoner B confesses, prisoner A will go to jail for 20 years and prisoner B will go free. Meanwhile, prisoner B is thinking the same thing. He's thinking, I'd love to remain silent if only I could know for sure that prisoner A will too, but he's probably counting on me to remain silent like a sucker so he can confess and go free while I do all 20 years. If we're rooting for the prisoners, we would say, oh, you both need to remain silent. You'll only get one year in jail each. And if you both confess, which is both acting in your own self-interest, admittedly, if you both confess, you'll end up with five years before you get parole. If only you could have cooperated, you could have made a better decision for yourselves as a group and as an individual. And you might say, well, things in the real world are not that neat. True enough. And what I've just described is a stripped-down example that shows you the nature of the problem. This was described and developed during the Cold War when it was used to figure out nuclear deterrence strategies. A whole mathematical discipline developed. When do you know you're in a prisoner's dilemma and how can you assess the consequences? You can see the stakes here. If a group would benefit from individuals making choices that are not in each individual's best interest, how do you persuade those individuals to do that? They'd be better off if everyone else does it too. How do you encourage these individuals to do that? How do you, do you require them by law? What do you do? Well, solving such a problem in the real world requires more analysis of variables. In the stripped-down version, the prisoners can't talk to one another, but in the real world, we might be able to, to communicate choices to one another, persuade using tools of communication, or we could pass laws that will just require the right behavior, but will that produce the results we want? What if there are unforeseen consequences to taking away these choices? What if the individuals hate each other so much they'd rather take the worst outcome rather than think their enemy is getting some kind of break too? What if they don't trust the system? They think everyone else is going to cheat then they might refuse to cooperate as well. Mathematical models, if they're to be applied to the real world, have to factor in all kinds of potential real-world variables, and those are as, as variable, so to speak, as human beings, as complex as human beings. So let's use an example from real life. Military leaders have found it necessary at times to take away choices from their own soldiers. And sometimes this has consequences, beneficial 
When Cortez landed in Mexico, he had a small force. He was clearly outnumbered by the Aztecs. All of his troops knew this. They knew they were outnumbered and that Cortez wanted them to fight and they would likely be slaughtered in the inevitable battle. So, for an individual soldier on the beach, what's the best thing? The best thing to do would be to retreat. Right? Head back to the ship. If you stay and fight... It's going to result in certain death. Surrender, and you'll be putting yourself at the mercy of the unknown. So the soldiers looked around at one another. Retreat looked inviting. And in fact, because it was inviting, it seemed inevitable. They might fight for a while, but soldiers would die. It would become clear they were outnumbered, and the soldiers who were left would eventually head for the ships early. So retreating early made rational sense for every individual soldier. Why wait and potentially die when you can retreat now and stay alive? And furthermore, they knew this was a self-reinforcing prophecy, self-fulfilling prophecy. They knew that all their comrades were facing the same decision. So each individual was thinking, well, I might want to stay and fight, but everyone else is probably going to retreat. It's the obvious best thing to do Everyone's going to act in their own self-interest here, and I can't stop them, so I might as well join them, or else I'm going to be out there by myself getting slaughtered. My best choice as an individual is to retreat right away, because that is also the best choice of every other individual here. They're smart people, rational, and those choices make it inevitable that staying and fighting is the worst thing I could do. There's no hope at all if I do that. Well... If enough of them make the best choice for oneself, then the army, Cortez's army, is doomed. So here's the dilemma from his perspective. If every soldier acted on their best, their best, uh, according to their best individual interests, then the whole army would retreat and the outcome would be predetermined. There would be zero chance of victory, which is not what Cortez wanted. So as soon as the ships landed and the men were on the shore, he set fire to his own ships. He burned the ship so that his prisoners could not... Did I say prisoners? I meant soldiers. He burned the ships so that his soldiers could not retreat. I guess they became prisoners at that point. He said, I recognize that you all have this incentive to retreat, but if you all follow your strongest incentive, your best rational self-interested choice, we will lose. So by removing that incentive, I'm going to give us a chance. Now, It's also said that by burning the ships, Cortez inadvertently, perhaps, sent a message to the Aztecs that said, we know we can't lose. We're here to stay. We're fighting to the death. We have some reason to believe we're certain of victory. Why else would a commander take away the possibility of retreat? And faced with this seemingly illogical resolve, the Aztecs second-guessed themselves. They themselves retreated, which helped Cortez to win the day. So this is a story, by the way. I don't know if it's actual history. It's a story that's used to explain game theory. So although game theory, as we know it today, where mathematical models can help us determine the answers, That's only been around for a few decades, but this kind of dilemma, trying to figure out what to do when individual choices might impair the group outcome, 
That's been around for centuries. And in fact, it was identified at least as early as Socrates. So we can say it's been here for millennia. The Greeks identified this issue too. We see it in Plato and in other sources. We see these examples in literature. And guess what? Mathematics is good at stripping things down and assessing probability and setting up equations and determining the best outcomes for a situation in a vacuum. It's less good at adding in the psychology, the morality, the history, the other factors at issue, all the variables that are human dependent, humans who are not always perfect, rational, self-interested creatures operating in a vacuum because we are, well, human. And the real world is no vacuum. Literature, though, literature has a knack for sniffing out these problems because they are intensely interesting. Authors are always interested in conflict and difficult choices and dilemmas, whether faced by prisoners or paupers or pirates or poets or philosophers or kings or democratic societies. So three cheers to literature for being accidentally good at locating problems as thorny as those dreamed up by theoreticians in a think tank. And another three cheers to literature for giving those problems all the real world factors that any attempt at solving these dilemmas must consider. And an extra three cheers for our guest today, a professor of political science and classics at Stanford University, who can explain it all to us in this, his 18th book, The Greeks and the Rational, The Discovery of Practical Reason. Professor Josiah Ober, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor, and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. 
All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor Meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week. Whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, joining me now is Josh Ober, who is a professor in the humanities at Stanford University, specializing in the political thought and practice of ancient Greece and its relevance to our world today. He's written numerous books about democracy, liberalism, knowledge, economics, and the rise and fall of classical Greece. And he's here today to talk about his most recent work, The Greeks and the Rational, The Discovery of Practical Reason, published by the University of California Press. Professor Ober, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. Delighted to have this opportunity to talk with you. So I'll confess that I started reading Plato and Aristotle in college, and part of me thought, wow, maybe I should just devote my life to this, and then I didn't. So I'm interested in where you first started reading these works and the impression they made on you and why you chose to devote your career to this period in particular. The ancient Greek world has always fascinated me. I read mythology when I was a kid, and when I started college, I had no real idea of what I wanted to study, but I remembered that I enjoyed Greek mythology, took a ancient history class focused on Greek history, and by the end of that class, I went to the professor and asked him, well, how do I become you? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's great. I am hoping he took that as quite a tribute. He looked me up and down and said, no hope. <laughs> I didn't come off as a particularly um, promising student. <laughs> my hair was down to the middle of my chest. My sort of dress and demeanor was uh, similar. But I persisted and said, well, just in case I wanted to try anyway, what would I do? And he said, well, you have to start learning Greek. So I did. Mm, yeah. You know, that's such a good story. I love that story. And it's something I'm trying to to impress upon my son as he's headed off to college. It can be so formidable to see a professor or a Hollywood director or a CEO or someone who's at the top of their profession and to think, well, that job's already taken. But, you know, every generation is going to need new people to do it. And so you can't just be 18 or 20 and look at the 40 and 50 year olds and think, well, they've got it covered. I'm too late. But someday we're all going to need new professors who are studying these things and who have who have gathered the expertise that those professors did when they were in their 20s and 30s. No, that's absolutely right. I think that each generation has something new to say, some new perspective. This is why I think Greek literature has been persistently pursued, because it's never exhausted. Some book I could read on Plato that told me everything I would ever want to know on Plato, why would I bother to ever go back and read Plato? But that book doesn't exist, because every time I approach a text, each generation, each reader of the text finds something that's new in their own there. Yeah. What is it about ancient Greece in particular that makes it so fascinating and inexhaustible? Is it is it because Athens was so special or is it because Athens and Sparta together gives us this contrast? Or was it just that that they were so good at thinking and writing about the structures in which they lived? 
Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. I mean, when I started graduate school, one of my professors made the offhand comment that the interesting thing about the Greek city-state was not that it didn't persist forever, but rather that it persisted for longer than 20 minutes. Mm, yeah. So in there is the beginning of, of at least a way to think about an answer. The Greek world is really distinctive in being a hugely extensive and long-lasting ecology of independent or semi-independent city-states. You know, by the time of Aristotle, there were probably over a thousand Greek city-states or mm. city-states, which um, Greek was the primary language. And that's really unusual in human history. We have lots of other examples of city-state ecologies, famously the Italian Renaissance, but no other one that we know of in human history is this big, this many people, this many states, and lasted so long. So I think that's at least part of it. There's no center to the Greek world. And Athens becomes an, an intellectual center of sorts, but it's not the political center. We don't have an imperial capital that simply determines anything, at least not for longer than about a generation. So I think that's part of it within the, each of these city-states. The norm was a body of citizens running their own affairs rather than a king or a, a single unitary tyrant. And so once again, that's, that, that's unusual to have a citizen-centered state in an ecology of citizen-centered states. And I think that background is what helped to make the possibilities for a really uh, distinctive and long-lasting literary tradition. Right. You know, the example that came to mind or the analogy that came to mind as you were talking about that is archaeologists, when they study a certain period that is particularly rich in the fossil record, and they'll say, well, we saw a real flourishing during this period, and and we see a, a kind of development of organisms in a way that we don't see in other periods, and that's why it's so interesting. And it really does help put it in perspective that this is not something that's necessarily stable, but there's a lot of these democracies or forms of government that are crackling up and then disappearing all kind of in a, a single location in a single generation or single era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, the remarkable thing is that this does last for um, a number of generations, this world of diverse uh, city-state. And what we get is, you know, sort of a diversity and unity. So the Greeks can all communicate with each other because they speak at least dialects of the same language. They have certain cultural norms in terms of religion, the way they fight, the way they eat, and so on. So you have this big culture zone, and yet no one's controlling it because of all of these uh, different independent states experimenting with different forms of social order, experimenting with different forms of ritual and religious expression. It's a, just, just a really a very dynamic period of human history. Mm. And so one of the questions that they must have been wrestling with, and one that you address in your book, this seems like it was sort of part of the underlying focus of your book, is the question of, well, if we're going to have these societies, how do we get along with one another? How do we flourish as a community when individuals are designed to act in their own rational self-interest? Did the Greeks identify this problem or when did they identify it and how did they attempt to resolve it? I think the basic question of cooperation, how do a bunch of individuals indeed each seeking to some extent their own advantage, accomplish anything together, is really the basic question that Greek literature asks from the very beginning. Mm. Look at Homer's Iliad, for example. I mean, the whole 
issue is, um, how are all of these warriors squabbling and disputing among themselves, having all of these internal issues, Achilles versus Agamemnon, going to manage to get together and fight a war against the uh, city of Troy? Now, Homer, I think, doesn't have a, a theory that helps explain it. He sets out a, a certain set of questions, really, without really ever coming up with a theory about why are people acting this way? How can you understand that? How might you become more expert at designing the kind of institutions or order that would allow people to cooperate? But by the time we're down to the middle of the 5th century, 5th century BC in Athens, those questions are arising. You know, the question of theorizing human behavior and theorizing the tendency to act in self-interest and posing this really as a question that should have a solution in order to explain how cooperation at scale is ever possible. Mm. And when you say they started to theorize it, is this where we get into what you call practical reason? Yes, exactly so. So, you know, I talk about in the subtitle of, of the book, the discovery of mm. practicalism. Yeah. And I think it really is a discovery rather than an invention in that human beings from as early as we can imagine, at least modern human beings, are living in groups, managing to cooperate. And yet these groups are made up of individuals who are capable of understanding individual interest or you know, small group interest, subgroup interest, factional interest, as other than the interest of the larger group that has to exist in order for flourishing to be possible. Hmm. So, you know, that's a problem that's always existed, but in, in terms of understanding it as a problem that might have a proximate solution, and that solution might actually require real expertise. There could be people who become expert in practical reason. I think that is, uh, that's a Greek discovery. Hmm. Right. And discover here is almost more like the discovery of electricity, where it's it's obviously always existed, but becoming aware of it and, and figuring out this could be useful, it could be dangerous, but we can figure out how what exactly it is and how to harness its power. Precisely right. That's a very nice analogy. And the discovery also goes along with some real worries. Hmm. As you discover a potential solution to cooperation problems, for example, but also the discovery comes along with the possibility of the manipulation of the skills of practical reason in order to exploit other people, to dominate other people. And this, I think, then becomes a real concern, is that those who are becoming expert in this new idea of you know, new theory of how it is that people are motivated and how people act might all end up being, as it were, uh, those who dominate our society, who take advantage of us because they have this special skill. Mm. That's so just like electricity, yeah. very valuable, but also potentially very dangerous. It becomes a real question of who will be the masters of this new technique. Right. Okay. So I want to talk about literature and give some specific examples of Greek literature in particular. But before we do that, let's bring ourselves up to the modern day quickly and before we hop backwards in time again and talk about what our world has added to these questions with game theory or rational choice mathematics and, and tools that we have that might not have been available to Socrates, at least in a form that he would maybe recognize or be familiar with. So what is game theory and how does it help us with these kinds of questions of cooperation? Yes. So game theory was 
formalized in the mid 20th century by a group of mathematicians. But what they were trying to explain is a phenomenon that doesn't really need mathematical expression. And that is, how is it that individual human preferences relate to beliefs about the world leading to the development of a set of possible outcomes or options. So I prefer apples to oranges. I believe that apples are on sale for a reasonable price. I choose then to buy the apples at the, the store and I get the outcome is I get to have apples to eat. Very sort of simple notion. But it gets much more complex when, for example, the oranges might be much cheaper than the apples. So mm. I prefer the apples, but I don't prefer them so much that I'm willing to pay a hugely high cost for the apples. I might then decide that the oranges are the best option. It gets even more complicated when other people are involved. Maybe somebody else is bidding on apples and oranges, offering a higher or lower price for a, a limited commodity. And I have to then think about uh, other players in the game of getting the end that I want. Well, the uh, 20th century breakthrough was both philosophically thinking through this as a problem of choice and then assigning various mathematical values to it. But the mathematics in the end, I think, are ancillary to the understanding of the problem of choice as being one that uh, is concerned with preferences, beliefs, and other players in the game, other people who have their own preferences and beliefs. Mm. And so literature fits in, whether it's literature from any period, in the sense of we also see characters who are faced with choices and choices that have complex variables associated with them. Yeah, exactly so. So uh, what the Greek writers, Plato writing dialogues, for example, I think understood having developed this background theory of how people make choices and how people make choices based on other people who are also making choices, everyone seeking to get their own best, uh, mm, best out. Yeah. Uh, Plato puts this all into a very particular literary form. Um, Thucydides, another you know, writing on the Peloponnesian War, once again, takes the same set of questions puts it into a literary form. Plato writing dialogues, Thucydides writing history, but they're really talking about the same general set of, uh, of problems. How do individuals or how do groups seek to get their best outcome in the face of other individuals and groups who are seeking to get their best outcome? And I think both Plato and Thucydides thought this was a real skill that could be developed, it could be used for good ends, it could be misused for bad ends. But they presented this not in abstract mathematics, but in just powerful works of literature that speak to us today and clearly spoke powerfully to people at the time. Right. And you mentioned the apples and oranges. Another famous example from game theory is the prisoner's dilemma, where basically the idea is... If you could coordinate, you might make a choice that's better for both of you overall, but individually, you might both be better off if you made a different choice. And so how do we make sure that the society all rises together, even if people who are faced with their own choice might choose to do something different? That's, that's exactly right. I mean, the prisoner's dilemma is one of the really famous results of early mathematical game theory. And the outcome, I mean, the, the problem, that the reason it's a dilemma is that a perfectly rational individual worrying about how another rational individual that is seeking his or her own interest 
is uh, pushed into the position of making a suboptimal choice for him or herself, but also suboptimal for the community. And this is a problem, at least so I argue in, in the book, that Plato already was very well aware of, that gets set up in a nice literary form by Plato in the Republic, describes a kind of thought experiment uh, that is predicated on exactly this kind of possible bad outcome. We end up in a worse condition than uh, we could if only we could cooperate, but cooperation is not chosen because we're worried about getting cheated by the other player. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with some more examples from the literature of ancient Greece. Okay, we're back with Professor Josiah Ober, who has explained to us the dilemmas of democracy, or indeed of living together under any system of government, living in a community when we're all individuals with our own self-interest, and sometimes that might conflict. So let's look a little more deeply at the literature itself that you're talking about. And I'm interested in, you mentioned Plato and the Republic, but are there stories or anecdotes that you could give us that might help illustrate how the Greeks recognized and attempted to resolve dilemmas that today might be addressed by game theorists? Yeah. So let's go to Plato because he's such a wonderfully literary writer. The first book of Plato's Republic, Socrates is having a conversation with a sophist named Thrasymachus. The sophists, I think, were the people who first began to really formalize this idea of uh, practical reason, to turn it into a skill that could be taught and the skill that could be then used to the ends of those who had learned it. And those ends could be either beneficial or malicious. So anyway, Socrates is talking with Rasimachus. Rasimachus says uh, that the rational individual will always seek his own interest, and he'll seek his own interest by dominating those who are less good at this phenomenon of practical reason. Socrates refutes him through a rather clever series of arguments, but then his friends, uh, Glaucon and Adimantus, all this is in the second book then of the Republic, say, that's not good enough, Socrates. Of course, you could be Thrasymachus because you're a better logician than he is. But we're going to reframe the story. And you're going to have to explain to us why justice is a good in itself Mm. meeting this really high challenge. So the challenge is a story. And it's a story about a man named Gyges who lives in Anatolia. He's a shepherd in the wilderness, comes across a a grave, finds on the finger of the skeleton a golden ring that when he puts it on, turns him invisible. It's a story that's been picked up by others, for example, Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. What does he do as soon as he becomes invisible? He uses it to go to the palace of the king, to seduce the queen, to kill the king, to make himself king of Lydia, and does all of this without anybody knowing, and uses his ill gotten gain from the kingdom to give all the kinds of nice sacrifices to the gods that the gods want, lives happily ever after, and has a sterling reputation because nobody knows he's done all of this stuff because he's invisible. So, says uh, Glaucon and Adimantus, so Socrates, why isn't Gyges the happiest man in the world? He got everything, and he got everything (laughs) by being absolutely self-centered, absolutely self-interested, breaking all the ordinary conventions. You tell us why Gyges isn't happy. Mm. And let me interrupt here and say Christianity 
Christianity might say, well, he's going to go to hell, so he'll get his suffering there. But we're before that. We're we're pre-Christian. Yeah, we're before that. We can you can bribe the gods. <laughs> you can bribe sacrifices. Everything's going to be just fine. The gods are happy with you. So it's a way of setting up a, a problem of self-interest. Why wouldn't everybody do this if yeah. they have chance? And as soon as you're able to make yourself invisible somehow, dodge away from the ordinary norms or the, the formal rules, then everybody's going to just break the rules. And we're in a world in which social order can only be maintained through the most harsh kind of coercion. That's bad. So anyway, that's the beauty of Plato's Republic. It's, it sets up this problem in this very imagistic way. You know, you imagine the shepherd finding the ring, seducing the queen as an invisible man, all of this sort of amazingly sort of visionary stuff, but it sets up this deep problem in social order that then Socrates ultimately has to has to solve in the rest of the dialogue. Mm. And that anecdote is a stand-in for the rest of us in why do we not cheat on our taxes, or why do we not uh, steal if nobody's looking, or all of the things where, you know, what is it that prevents us from doing any kind of crime that might help us, or any kind of immoral action that might help us if we think we can get away with it? So what does Plato say? Well, so initially, the answer is, but it's not the satisfactory answer, Glaucon suggests, well, most people say that people obey the rules because they're afraid mm. that somebody else will be a better rule breaker than themselves. And so we create all these laws to bind ourselves out of fear, just out of right. pure fear of getting the worst payoff because somebody else is cleverer than we are. So he creates this kind of image of the world as being, or rather of social order, as being that which is just necessary out of a fear of the worst. That's a pretty grim vision of the world, and Socrates needs to then come up with a story about how the world could be different than that, how it could be genuinely a, uh, a world of rational cooperation. So, you know, we don't have to do the rest of the Republic story, but it does set up this problem in a very neat way, and once again, through a way that is very literary. By the yeah. way, Plato borrows the story from another great work of Greek literature. Herodotus tells the story of Gyges, uh, who became king king of Lydia, but it turns out to be a very different story. There's no magic ring, and it's a story that basically really introduces the problem of other players in the game. So if you read Herodotus and Plato together, you can see them both really working on the same problem of how do you deal with a self-interest if you can get all the other players out of the game because you're invisible, or if there are other players in the game, and therefore you have to take into account their interests and motivations. So was Plato basically setting up the parameters of game theory without having the, the mathematical component that would kind of work through some of these issues? It sounds like he was aware of the complexity of the problem and how many different things you would need to consider in order to reach a pure conclusion, but wasn't using the same terms or thinking about it in quite the same way as today's social scientists or game theorists might approach the problem. Yeah, I think he had very much the same set of intuitions, uh -huh. the, the same idea that the key issues are thinking about people's 
preferences or desires. So mm -hmm. what does visual or what does some collective want? And then the second part of it is what does the individual or the collective believe about the world? And that includes what are the background rules that might lead to punishment, what other individuals or groups are seeking to get their best advantage that you have to take account of, and that all of this can be thought of in almost an algorithmic sense that leads you to the choice of the best available option. It may not be your most preferred option, but it's the best available option, and that doing that systematically, really understanding what all of the parameters of the of the situation are is what it is to be an expert in practical reason. Mm -hmm. I think he did see all of that very clearly. He just didn't need to assign algebraic expression to it. Yeah. So what do we miss if we overlook the relevance of literature to ancient Greeks? How does it help us understand them to know that they were not only using literature as a as a form of entertainment or maybe a, a bit of artistic inspiration, but using it to work through these issues? Yeah, I think that we tend to imagine in the modern world, the world broken up in all of these sort of academic or uh, sort of formalized uh, domains. So the world of policy, of state policy, of interstate relations, of economics are all sort of hived off to particular disciplines, whereas literature has become for us the realm of art or beauty or entertainment or perhaps understanding something about the human experience. But for the Greeks, it all came together. Hmm. If I was Aeschylus writing tragedy, I'm obviously entertaining my audience. If they don't applaud, it's all over. But I'm also trying to work out real problems of human motivation and action, questions of power, questions of interstate relations. All of these are happening in each of the various genre of literature that we have from the, the Greek world, because they haven't divided the world up into a realm in which literature is one thing and economics is another thing and state policy making is, is yet another thing. It's the beauty of reading Greek literature is you can read it for its remarkable artistic expression, but also for the depth of the, of the, of the thought about fundamental problems of, for example, human social order that are being explored in really remarkably sophisticated ways. Mm. You note in your book that we've had studies of game theory principles in connection with philosophers like Hobbes and Hume and, and in novelists like Jane Austen, which is a perfect example of people who are sorting through these kinds of choices and trying to figure out their own self-interest, even though there, there may be conflicting options and a lot of variables to consider. I'm wondering if you have a, a theory of why this hasn't been applied to ancient Greece before. What does your book add? And is there some reason why people have overlooked this connection that you're making? I think at least a primary reason is the idea that antiquity and modernity are just radically disjoint. Um, mm -hmm. Now, antiquity is its own world. Modernity is its world. The past is a foreign country in the famous 
tagline. Mm-hmm. And so there's a tendency to say it's okay for Hobbes or Hume or even Austin because they're fundamentally modern or early mm-hmm. modern to modern. They're, they're us, whereas the Greeks are not us. They're right. these other people that we can project various sort of ideas of how we might be if we were not us. But I think that actually the Greeks in many ways were us. They were dealing with the same kinds of problems of how is it that we achieve our collective ends given our individual desires. And that's why game theory, contemporary game theory, I think can shed some light on the Greeks and why studying Greek literature can be very helpful for contemporary game theorists. The problem with the mathematical expression is that the math gets too complicated at a certain point and very hard to use more than three players in a game. The math just blows up. It's hard to um, bring in other kind of uh, non-rational motivations and make the math work. Whereas if we attend to Greek literature, we see that the kind of formalized reasoning about options and outcomes is part of a larger world of a larger process of using reason in the context um, of emotions, of uh, conflicting desires, and so on. So my argument is that game theorists need to go back to literature just as much as literary scholars need to learn some of the tricks of game theory to better understand what's going on in some important works of literature. Mm, That's beautifully put. Literature, it's so good at identifying desires. I mean, that's basically what drives just about every narrative is somebody wanting something. But also there are challenges and just so many different things that are going through their minds and, and so many different players, so many different characters, which which really brings literature closer to life. And game theory, as you say, might be good at at abstracting that out and turning it into a, a set of choices in their more simple forms, which can be useful to see. But at some point, it's got to connect up with all of the reasons why humans are not just rational actors, but have biases or imperfect knowledge or emotions or all of the different things that make us kind of choose things that are wrong for us sometimes or make us act in ways that might not be perfectly captured by a mathematical equation. That's exactly right. The thing that game theory can give us is simplification Uh, uh of complex situations that you can begin to see some things that are there once you strip away the various complications. And that's really, that can be extremely helpful. And uh, we can really see in some cases what is going on behind a situation once you uh, clear away the complications. But if you just say, okay, now having cleared away the complications, we understand everything, of course, you've completely misconstrued the world. You have to bring the complications back in again and say, all right, having simplified the problem, now I can bring it back into the rich fullness of the literary expression and see why that why that is an aspect of but never the whole of either the work of literature or the broader reality that literature in some way reflects. So both reduction and complexity, I think, are parts of being a good reader. And game theory can help you be a better reader, but it can never be the whole of being a good reader. Hmm. A better reader and a better citizen. Indeed, exactly so. Okay, Professor Josiah Ober, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much, Jack. Okay. 
Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Professor Josiah Ober for joining me today. Do check out his book. You will be better when you've bought it and smarter when you've read it. That is a guarantee. We have Kurt Vonnegut Jr. coming up soon. Compliments of Christina Jarvis and T.S. Eliot around the corner with Jed Rasula. Check off with Bob Blaisdell. And guess what? It's time, people. E.M. Forster, a room with a view. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. I will be wallowing in my nostalgia for that movie, rest assured, and my own little trip to Italy once upon a time. Oh, dear. God, what a great film. Great soundtrack, great acting, and a great guest with whom to revisit it all. Gina Bonaguro. My producer just said, I took out the discussion of amphetamines in that interview in case we have any people who are struggling with addiction or abuse. I didn't want to insult them, and I I could not remember discussing amphetamines. Maybe I was saying that watching that movie and then living my life with my new self, the self that had watched that film and who then traveled dreamily to Italy, floating there like as if on a cloud with a tender and vulnerable heart and a soul that wanted to be bigger and greater and a mind on high alert for every new possibility. Maybe I compared that with taking amphetamines, which I have not taken, unless you count the rapidity of Italy, swallowed like a pill, down like a drug, making me twitch with excitement, even now as an old man in the middle of winter. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>